from the American College of Cardiology. This is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief with this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. Good morning. I'm recording this podcast on Monday, January 27th, 2020. I've chosen three articles today that illustrate different aspects of care. One is a brief review of the key points regarding the guidelines for acute management of uh, pulmonary embolism. An interesting study looking at the implications of an abnormal stress ECG when the stress echo is normal, something that I encountered quite a bit in my practice. And then lastly, a really nice article looking at echocardiographic phenotype, genotype, and prognosis in transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. So let's get started with a brief note, key points from the ESE guidelines for the diagnosis and management of acute PE. And there are about 10 items that I think are important for our practice. The first is the notion that for diagnosis, D-dimer level cutoff should be adjusted for age and pretest probability rather than just fixed values. Remember a few weeks ago, I did a podcast looking at different levels of Wells criteria and then adjusting the D-dimer cutoffs for that. And it, it allows for more precise diagnosis and potentially elimination of unnecessary imaging testing. In this guideline, the terminology such as provoked and unprovoked PE or venous thromboembolism is no longer supported. Rather, the notion of something like reversible risk factor, persistent risk factor, or no identifiable risk factor is employed. The authors offer a revised risk-adjusted management algorithm, which is proposed, and it looks at clinical severity, right ventricular function, and other comorbidities. And there's an emphasis on the use of multidisciplinary teams, that's a class 2A, and early PE risk stratification. Hemodynamic instability is now more clearly defined as the presence of cardiac arrest, needing resuscitation, or obstructive shock or persistent hypotension not caused by something else. Rescue IV thrombolysis is now a class 1 recommendation that was previously a 2A. And interventional thrombus-removing therapy, catheter-based or surgical, is now a 2A, and that was previously a 2B, and particularly for patients with hemodynamically deteriorating pulmonary embolism. Direct oral anticoagulants are now recommended as first choice over warfarin, even in patients who are warfarin eligible. A reduced dose of apixaban or rivaroxaban is thought about for extended anticoagulation and should be considered after the first six months of treatment for these patients. Edoxaban or rivaroxaban should be considered as an alternative to lomalike mechloid heparin in patients with cancer, with caution in GI cancer due to increased bleeding risk with the DOAX. A dedicated diagnostic algorithm is proposed for suspected PE in pregnancy. Using D-dimer and other clinical prediction rules to rule out PE during pregnancy is a class 2A indication previously was a 2B. And remember that the DOACs are not recommended in pregnancy. That's a class 3. Routine follow-up with an integrated inpatient-outpatient care delivery model three to six months after a PE, as well as referring symptomatic patients with mismatched defects on VQ scan more than three months out to an expert chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension program is a class one recommendation. So this was published in the European Heart Journal excellent guideline, and these were the key points that I thought were relevant to your practice and to mine. A second article comes from a study looking at patients who underwent 
ECG and echo stress testing at a single academic institution between the year 2000 and 2014. And the authors divided the cohort into those who had negative findings on both ECG and echo, patients who had a positive ECG test but a negative echo, and patients who had a positive echo. The primary outcome of interest was a composite endpoint of death, MI, hospitalization for unstable angina, or coronary revascularization. And they also had secondary outcomes looking at adverse events and downstream testing. After they excluded patients who had a submaximal test or non-diagnostic ECG or imaging results, there were about 15,000 patients in the cohort, mean age 52. About 6,200 or 41% were men, 59% women. As they looked at the patients, about 85% were negative with both echo and ECG. 8.5% had a positive ECG and negative echo, and 6% had a positive echo. They followed the patients for a median of 7.3 years. And the composite endpoint varied depending on the test result, as you'd expect. Patients who had a negative ECG, negative echo, the endpoint was 8.5%. If they had a positive ECG and negative echo, it was nearly 15%, and patients who had a positive echo, it was 37%. The impact of the test and predicting death was similar, negative, negative, 4.8%, positive ECG, negative echo, about 6%, and 11% in patients who had a positive echo. Myocardial infarction, similar findings. If the stress test was completely negative, ECG and echo, the risk was 2%. If the ECG was positive but the echo negative, about 3.6%. And if the echo was positive, it was nearly 9%. So the authors concluded that the presence of a positive ECG result with a normal stress echo does identify a population who are at slightly increased risk of adverse events. The reason for these are not known are these patients with microvascular disease or some other finding. And and generally in my practice, I have felt anecdotally that they had a slightly increased risk compared to patients who are completely normal on stress testing. What to do about this in terms of therapy is unknown, but certainly it it would make me pause to think at least a, a more preventive strategy and perhaps a slightly more aggressive surveillance strategy would make sense in these patients who appear to be at slightly increased risk compared to those who have a completely normal stress echo. The last paper I want to talk about looks at a group of patients with transthyretin cardiac amyloid. This is a study examining over 1,200 patients who had a transthyretin cardiac amyloid. It looks at the spectrum of those who had wild type and hereditary cardiac amyloid and outcomes. So 1,200 patients mean age almost 78 years who had prospective evaluations and follow-up between the year 2000 and 2019. 62% had wild type, about 474 had hereditary, of which roughly two-thirds had the V122I variant, and about a third had the T60A variant. The authors performed multivariable Cox modeling and hazard analysis to look at correlations of outcome looking at both echocardiographic and genotypic information. As you'd expect, the median survival was not great. It was 58 months in patients with wild type compared to 36 months in patients who had the hereditary V122I type. 
but more than 60 months in patients who have the T60A hereditary type. At diagnosis, as you might expect, the patients with the V122I hereditary type of transthyretin cardiac amyloid had the most severe degree of systolic and diastolic function across all the echocardiographic parameters that they looked at, and the group with T60 heredity transthyretin cardiac amyloid had the least. All of the various echocardiographic parameters were predictive, stroke volume index, right atrial area index, longitudinal strain, E to E prime ratio, and of course, severe aortic stenosis was also associated with prognosis. Patients who had severe AS had a median survival of just 22 months. Patients who had a TAVR, a small group, seemed to do better. So the authors concluded that there were the three distinct genotypes present with varying degrees of severity, and echocardiography indicates that this is a complex pathophysiology in which both systolic and diastolic function are independently associated with mortality, and severe AS, of course, has very poor prognosis in this population. Clearly, this interrelationship between genotype and echocardiographic modeling can be helpful to us in giving patients some idea of prognosis and hopefully also will inform therapeutic choices as our science continues to build. So I've given you three articles today to think about. One is a a look at the guideline, the key points on managing PE, a very interesting paper looking at patients who have stress testing where the ECG is positive and the stress echo part is negative. And lastly, a very elegant analysis looking at patients who have cardiac amyloidosis, the transthyretin type. I want to thank you for listening to Eagle's Eye View. I enjoy bringing you these articles every week. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from acc.org. And you can find the articles and the journal scans on the website. And I hope you go there frequently for these and other concise bits of information about the guidelines, other articles, and our clinical trials. Hope you have a great week, and thank you for listening.